I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're broadcasting from today, and we pay our respects to the Kamaragal people of the Guringai Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from today. I found out becoming Baringal or Motiringa seems impossible without the process of feeling frustrated. Uh, it does bring up a bit of guilt, I suppose, that my Macedonian should be a bit better. I believe it's a mother teaching Korean well. I can't do it. So I feel like I'm not good enough mother. That's Chorong. And before her was Maggie and Leah. And I totally get how they're all feeling. Because no matter what we do as bilingual parents, it sometimes feels as though it's just not enough, right? Hello again, Elaine Laforteza here, welcoming you to My Bilingual Family. In this episode, we're taking a step back to look at the bigger picture. There are over 6,000 languages in the world. But what forces determine which of these are considered more important? And how does this affect the everyday decisions we make as bilingual parents here in Australia? So glad you can join me for this discussion. If you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, and I hope you have, then you'll remember we met SBS Korean producer Leah in episode two. Hello, um, my name is Leah. And I am a radio presenter. Her husband is Victor, and they have three children. In terms of the languages, four languages have been running in our little house. My Korean, Victor's Cantonese, and Mandarin, and English for all of us. Leah and Victor's kids can all speak Korean, though the eldest now speaks mostly in English since he started school. Um, if my Korean journey with my children is sort of half success and half failure, because so far at least two out of three speak Korean, but Victor's Chinese language journey with children is more like a failure. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that um, I didn't mean to hurt Victor, but it is the fact none of our children can speak fluent Cantonese or Mandarin. Um, it is very sad that the children can't talk to their grandparents in China because they love the kids so much and they can't talk to them. But there is language barrier between our kids and grandparents. So my name is Victor. I'm Leah's husband. For me, it's a bit tricky, my background. 
because I am from South China in Guangdong region. Well, the city that I come from is called Dongguan, so I speak the Dongguan dialect of the Cantonese. Yeah, Cantonese is a difficult language to speak. In contrast with the Mandarin, which is the official language of Chinese, I just want to give the kids an easier environment to start with, and that's why we send them to the Mandarin school to start with first,、uh, because Mandarin is a common Chinese people speak. So after they understand, speak Mandarin, Cantonese can be a further, I would say, a study of the Chinese that they can have. Rather than passing on his mother tongue, Victor's teaching his kids the national language of China. That way, they can still maintain a connection to their dad's homeland. I find Victor's approach really intriguing, and to discuss this with me is Dr. Ingrid Piller. I'm distinguished professor of applied linguistics at Macquarie University. If I remember Victor's situation correctly. He actually had three languages in the family, right? Yes.、And、then there is English, of course. So that's a lot of languages. And I don't think there are actually all that many Cantonese schools in Australia. And so I think that's the approach he has to take if he wants to maintain that language. And of course, one of the important things about learning Mandarin is actually being able to learn how to read and write, get familiar with the characters. That's of course the same for the two languages, and so it's certainly a good start. I guess when he says he wants to start his kids off with Mandarin, what he means is actually sending them to school once they are a bit older. So he's presumably not talking about babies. Babyhood, I wouldn't start with a language that's maybe a learned language because you want to establish a language that gives you an emotional connection with your children, right? I just wanted to clarify because you said when it's that babyhood stage, not to structure language learning as such and just to speak it naturally, but as kids get older, that's when the structure comes and when the choices have to be made. Yeah, that's right. Because look, I mean. When you have a new baby, you've got so many things to think about, right? And you want to make sure they are well fed. You get enough sleep as a parent, and you just, you know, you reorganize your family with that new person. What you do there is you chat to your child all the time in a particular language. That actually is the first foundation of language learning. Well, that makes sense then. That Leah and Victor's children speak more Korean. Because, like me, Leah's been the primary caregiver in those early years. In fact, there's even evidence that the foundations of language learning begin in the womb. So, our mother language is truly the first language we encounter and form an emotional attachment to. But there's another reason maintaining Victor's language is a bit tricky, and it has nothing to do with him not having a womb. It's got to do with the relationship between his Dongwan dialect and Mandarin, 
within the global hierarchy of languages. Look, a good way to think about the relationships between different languages is to think about them in terms of a pyramid. Out of the around 6,000 languages in the world, probably 90% are at the bottom of the pyramid. All those languages that people use in their local communities. So these are spoken languages and they don't have any official status. So Victor's Dongwan dialect, as well as my language, Ilocano from the Philippines, are towards the bottom of that pyramid. And above this very large layer of spoken languages sits a smaller layer of languages that have official status somewhere, usually a nation state, but it could also be an institution. So they have some role in formal education, maybe in the media of a country. And there are about a hundred or so languages. These are mostly national languages, like Korean or Greek or Vietnamese. On top of those sits another dozen languages that are international languages that are used in international communication. And these are bigger languages, like the ones used by the UN, Arabic, Spanish, Mandarin. And on the top of that language pyramid sits one single language only, and that one single language today is English as the hypercentral language of globalization. And English sits on top because pretty much everyone in the world, in order to communicate globally, they need English. And so that gives English a really, really special status. So it's easy to understand why we put so much emphasis on English and why some parents prioritise English over their own languages. Because it is that linguistic passport to all kinds of opportunities. Going back to Mandarin and Cantonese, you will often hear people say about Cantonese, for instance, that it's just the dialect of Chinese. Now, in terms of linguistics, that's completely wrong because Cantonese and Mandarin are not mutually intelligible. This comes back to questions of power because, um, as linguist Weinreich famously said, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Oh, wow. You know, there is the power of the Chinese state that subsumes all the languages within the Chinese state as dialects of Chinese. So that's a way to establish prestige. And Elaine, I'm sure you will have heard the same, that some people will say Ilocano is just a dialect. Mm -hmm. Frequently. Again, that's a result of how the language is constructed relative to the nation. So, I have an admission to make. In my life before this podcast, I used to refer to my mother tongue, Ilocano, as a dialect rather than a language. And this is something that I've heard other Filipinos do as well. Now, I know better. 
The Ilocano I'm trying to pass on is the language I mostly speak with my mum. It's my way of connecting to my mum and for my kids to know this part of me deeply. Throughout my childhood, my mum and I lived on different continents, Asia, North America, Europe, and now Australia. Languages, people, cultures, and rules changed. But Ilocano was our constant. It's our go-to language when we're tired of adapting to different cultures. It's how we wind down, especially with our favorite Ilocano song, the classic Manang Biday. My mom taught me this song and an R-rated version of it as well. Manang Biday, Ilocat Mumanti. I'm not going to sing the rest. Manang Biday, Ilocat Mumanta, Bintana, Ikalumbabam, Takita M, Toy Kinayawam, Ay Mataya Kono So speaking and singing in Ilocana for me is all of this. My connection to family, humor, and joy. Ilocano isn't just what I say, it's who I am. I am Ilocano. It's my cultural identity and heritage. But it's also so much more than that. (laughs) As the host of my bilingual family, I've been able to speak my language for the first time publicly, and that's been really emotional for me. I always thought Ilocano didn't belong in my professional life. But knowing about this global hierarchy of languages, I now understand that I put Ilocano lower than the other languages I speak, even though it's the language that makes me feel complete. Given we live in Australia, where my kids will learn English at school, I'm determined to make sure they grow up with Ilocano, but it's a small language and desperately under-resourced. I think I've bought all the Ilocano kids' books available online, and there's definitely no Bluey or Peppa Pig in Ilocano. So what can parents like me do? I think it's important to actually recognize where your language sort of sits in the hierarchy because the languages at the bottom of the pyramid, they are typically spoken languages. Even if they have a script, very often there isn't much written material. And if there aren't a whole lot of formal language schools available and a whole lot of material on the internet, then you need to get other people in to speak with your child in that language. So you can't do it alone. You know the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. You really need extended family, you need friends, you need community. So if you're ready to maintain those community connections, then, you know, I think you have every chance to develop fluency in your child. If, on the other hand, you kind of feel like, I don't actually want to hang out with other Ilocano speakers, you know, I mean, then that's a different story. You know, your your kids can still um, have some phrases and a general appreciation of the language and culture, but they might not get very proficient. 
The migrant languages that are going strong after more than a few generations in Australia are almost all languages of people who have a strong sense of community. But for speakers of languages new to Australia, like Rohingya, finding a community may pose additional challenges. Let's hang out for a bit with SBS Rohingya producer Yasmin while she pays a visit to her friend Asma. We have been talking on the phone, you know, lately about our language, which is Rohingya language, our mother tongue, I mean, which is a very small language. And then um, not, there is no u- much uses in much part of the world. What do you think like about our language? Do you, do you think it's an important language? Of course, I think it's very important because our Rohingya language, our ethnic community and in the world before people doesn't know about that much. Now is, I think, a little bit more popular than before. So I wish our kids can speak Rohingya language better. But what benefit are they going to get? Because this is your ethnic community, your Rohingya language, your mother tongue. So, so for you, you think our Rohingya language is our identity. So if someone can speak a Rohingya language, straight away we will know that that is our identity, yeah, this is isn't our, it? Yeah, uh, in Australia, like mm-hmm. an immigration mm-hmm. interview, they give it to you at the end, mm-hmm. some kind of like one to two minute question mm-hmm. with the Rohingya. So proof this is mm. real Rohingya because most of the Rohingya doesn't have an ID mm. from our country mm. so you need to prove if you can speak Rohingyan mm. you are the, the actual Rohingya oh so that's yeah, everywhere like it's very important to prove your identity, yeah, prove your identity. Oh. Yeah. of course they will be battling with much fewer resources than the more established migrant communities because one thing that established migrant communities have been able to achieve is actually to set up all kinds of community schools and so there is within Australia a local infrastructure that supports particular language groups and the newer migrant communities may just be building those resources in an environment that is far less supportive of multiculturalism than may have been the case in the final decades of the 20th century, for instance. And so that really is a challenge for them. This challenge is being felt by many bilingual families, including Bupinder and Harminder. My husband... And I grew up in Rajasthan, so as well as Punjabi, we can also proficiently communicate in Rajasthani dialect of Hindi. But our children have grown up here in Sydney, where we must use English outside our home. But our homely environment is completely Punjabi. We always made sure that when our children come home, that we talk to them in Punjabi language. So they know that, okay, outside our home is an English environment and inside our home is Punjabi environment. That's Bupinder, and she's describing a bilingual parenting method, which I think of as inside-outside. Inside is the home language, and outside is English. And both their teenage kids speak Punjabi, so it's gone well for their family, to a degree. I feel for them because when they go outside in their school, they are known as English as a second language children. Here also they are told that you're learning Punjabi is your second language. So they are a bit confused. They're standing in the middle. They need support. They need to feel confidence. 
the next generation it will be finish very hard very hard in this next 20 years it will be very hard unless or until they go to punjab and stay over there harminder's dire prediction that in the next generation punjabi will be lost in his family is sadly likely to come true the typical pattern of multilingualism in australia is that by the third generation we usually see that the home language has disappeared and that's why australia has been called a graveyard of languages people are actually right to be somewhat pessimistic about the prospects of maintaining their home language in the long term because the point of language is for us to connect and to communicate with other people so if you're doing that as an individual it's the one hand clapping or something so you need at least another hand to clap and so that's really where um, a language policy strong languages in schooling come in at the moment what we do in australia is we have bilingual kids you know up until 5 years old or so but as soon as they start school that's where the real challenge starts so we have those multilingual kids coming into schools and we turn them into english monolinguals and then we sort of have a couple of hours per week and try to teach them some other language and it doesn't work very well it's really got to get better at that This is exactly what's happening at my daughter's school. She's just starting Italian. But it would be more helpful for me if the school supported her Ilocano learning. But I know that's never going to happen. And that's because of the place English has in that language pyramid. Ingrid called it the hypercentral language of globalization. English gives us access to the world. So we've grown lazy here in Australia. We don't bother with the other languages we have because we've developed this mindset that languages other than English are not as important. Before this podcast, I used to say that Australia is a monolingual country, but we're totally not. We're multilingual. What we do have is a monolingual mindset. This mindset influences not just school language policies but our access to healthcare and services the media and immigration and for parents like me and you it means we get little institutional support to maintain our languages Hi, my name is Julia. I'm a mother of two. I have a 12-year-old son and an 8-year-old daughter. And my husband is from Norway. So when I first had my child, my husband and I decided to do this one parent, one language um, thing where I spoke in Korean exclusively and my husband used Norwegian only. 
And that went pretty well for the first few years. But as soon as my number two came and things got a bit crazy, unfortunately, Norwegian went out. Yeah, now we are focusing just on um, trying to keep his Korean and, and her Korean up. I noticed that at home, I would say pretty much the same things all the time. I found that if I brought him outside and he would be more exposed to more people speaking the language, I would seek out Korean teachers who would teach art. His first piano teacher was Korean as well. So yeah, I try to keep as many Korean activities as I could. He attended Korean school during weekends. Without my noticing it, I think I have sort of developed this community around us that are quite heavily Korean. Sometimes I wonder if I am kind of making this bubble and if that's healthy or not. So I wonder if he goes out to the real world, if he would have a shock (laughs) that actually the world isn't full of Korean Australians. Australia is a complex, diverse nation consisting of many little real worlds and communities. And um, what is important, I think, for us to be successful as a strong, multicultural, cohesive, diverse nation is actually to be grounded in our neighborhoods, in our communities and you know, form strong personal connections with the people with who we live, our colleagues, our neighbors, our friends. And that is the basis on which we then can go out to other neighborhoods and where we all meet as equals. And the strength of a nation is really built on all those little real worlds where we support each other with our different languages and cultures. You know, Julia, I had quite a long chat with my two producers about your bubble, and all three of us felt that what you've created for your kids is a really healthy sense of identity, and that's going to help them navigate the world successfully when they're older. It feels especially impressive, given your kids grew up in a mixed language home. Now, it seems to me you've done all the right things. You've created this community of Korean speakers around you. Because, as Ingrid pointed out, we can't do this on our own. And I'm wondering if you're feeling tentative because you're actually challenging the powerful dominance of English. We need to remember that this status quo is just a mindset. The real world is where we speak 300 or more languages. Maybe that sense of uneasiness is actually the weight of that pyramid. Even if we agree that English and the bigger languages at the top of that pyramid are worth knowing, that doesn't mean the languages at the bottom are less important. And in our next and final, yes, final, episode. Oh, I'm going to miss this. We're going to talk to a number of people who know that our languages are important. Like Julia, they've created strong communities of support around them. 
Thanks to all the people who shared their stories with us, and to SBS Punjabi producer MP Singh for interviewing Bupinder and Harminder. Also, special thanks to Amy Ibsen Flederer for introducing us to Julia, and thanks to my mum Maria Eleanor for being such a great sport and singing with me. If you'd like to drop us a line, we are at mybilingualfamily at sbs.com.au. We really appreciate everyone who has emailed us. It really validates how much our stories need to be shared. So a big thank you for sharing yours. And we'll answer some of the questions you've asked us in our next episode. So until then, ba'alam, goodbye from me. Elaine Laforteza and thanks for listening to my bilingual family. Mm-hmm.